0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
1: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today we offer part two of the 1900 Galveston Hurricane. In the process of researching a story like this, a number of things happen to you, the first being an overwhelming sense of sadness at the sheer magnitude of human loss and the natural urge to want to glean something from the story that might be useful for the future. How much comes down to human failing and how much comes down to other factors is often hard to discern. But in this case, much of this human tragedy could have been avoided had those in charge listened to the warnings. The city planner should have been looking out for people's best interest and their safety when they were asked numerous times to build a seawall. Then there was Isaac Klein, the chief meteorologist for Galveston, who firmly believed that no storm of any magnitude could ever harm Galveston, and who was dead wrong. His professional opinion was largely responsible for the lack of concern that Galveston showed toward protecting its citizens from any future storms. He was the sole person responsible for issuing the warnings. And had he acted in time, in the right way, many thousands of lives could have been saved. But he saw no reason to order an early evacuation. In fact, research hasn't shown me that there even was an evacuation plan. That would have been his responsibility, working in tandem with the city government. He had built what he and others thought was a strong beach house five blocks in from the beach with 15 foot high pilings allowing what he thought was plenty of room for a storm surge as the storm started to show its fury neighbors began to flock to his house for safety and there were 40 people in his house when the surge had reached the floor level 15 feet above the sand all he and his wife and children and his friends and neighbors could see from the windows at one point was water 360 degrees of water filled with floating rooftops, bodies of humans and animals, the detritus of a broken city, before the surge popped another four feet in just a matter of seconds, sweeping his house, his children, his wife, and his neighbors away with it. In Part 1, I mentioned a 1999 book by Eric Larson called Isaac's Storm, A Man, A Time, and the Deadliest Hurricane in History, which is a very well-researched piece of work, This past weekend, I found a November 99 C-SPAN video in which Eric Larson gives us an in-depth look at how he put together this story, and I highly recommend you watch it because it will add a lot of texture to this story, especially with regard to how little, if any, blame was given to Dr. Klein after the storm. It seems that between his own report, in which he portrayed himself as the hero of Galveston and that of the Washington, D.C. Bureau, which later promoted him, Klein's reputation not only survived Galveston, It prospered until he became one of the most revered meteorologists in the U.S. As with all stories, you have to look at it within the context of time to fully understand it. In this case, book titles mean something. Larson's book title, Isaac Storm, A Man, A Time, and the Deadliest Hurricane in History. 1900 in America was a different time. It was the age of invention, the age of endless possibilities, the airplane, the automobile, the telephone. All were new and soon to come of age. But there was much we didn't know. In our story, The Man-Eater of Manawan, the people in the coastal New Jersey town of Manawan had no idea that a great white shark could come up a local river and attack swimmers. Or that sharks even attacked swimmers in the surf. The accepted thinking was that sharks were only known to mariners and ships at sea. People were largely uninformed. They just didn't know. When the cruise ship Titanic sailed, its owners bragged that it was unsinkable. Well, it wasn't. When the news that a storm had entered the Gulf reached the people of Galveston on September 6th, no one panicked. The bridges leading to the mainland were not busy. And there were actually four bridges. Three were railroad bridges, and one was a two-mile-long wooden bridge for pedestrians and wagons. When on September 8th, the storm broke a cruise ship from its moorings, and it destroyed three bridges— two railroad bridges, and that two-mile-long wagon bridge spanning the bay to the mainland, the only means of escape from Galveston. It was too late. As for the insurance companies, this surprised me. Almost no one had life insurance on their families or insurance on their homes. The entire payout of personal claims after the disaster came to less than $10,000. Hurricanes, if you were working for the storm centers, were called tropical cyclones. And if you were going to issue warnings... Those warnings only went to ships at sea. Apparently not intended for cities that lie in the path of destruction. That was the thinking in 1900. Pretty archaic thinking for just 120 years ago, but the world has come a long way in just a short time. And now to the events of that fateful day, September 8, 1900, beginning with St. Mary's Orphanage. St. Mary's Orphanage consisted of two large two-story dormitories just off the beach behind a row of tall sand dunes that were supported by salt cedar trees. The buildings had balconies facing the gulf. According to one of the boys at the orphanage, the rising tides began eroding the sand dunes as though they were made of flour, he said. Soon the waters of the gulf reached the dormitories. The sisters at the orphanage brought all of the children into the girls' dormitory because it was the newer and stronger of the two. In the first floor chapel, they tried to calm the children by having them sing, Queen of the Waves, as the waters continued to rise. Taking the children to the second story of the dormitory, the sisters had Henry Esquior, a worker, collect clothesline rope. One of the boys later said that the children were very frightened, and the sisters were very brave. By 6 p.m., the wind was gusting past 100 miles per hour, and the waters of the Gulf and Bay had met, completely flooding the city. Residents climbed to the second stories, attics, and even the roofs of their homes. Flying debris struck many who dared venture outside their homes. Around 7.30 p.m., the main tidal surge struck the South Shore. Houses along the beachfront were lifted from their foundations and sent like battering rams into other houses. Houses fell upon houses. At St. Mary's Infirmary in the downtown area, the floodwaters filled the first floor. From the second-story balcony, the sisters pulled refugees in as they floated by and brought them into the overcrowded hospital. Almost every window in the facility was broken out, sending the wind and rain whipping through the building. At the orphanage, three miles west of the city, the children and sisters were now gathered in the girls' dormitory, and they heard the crash of the boys' dormitory as it collapsed and was carried away by the floodwaters. The sisters cut the clothesline rope into sections and used it to tie the children to the cinctures which they wore around their waists. Each sister tied to herself between six to eight children. These were all very young children who stood no chance of surviving being crushed by a falling building as it was swept away in the storm waters, which is what happened. It was a valiant yet sacrificial effort to save the children. Some of the older children climbed onto the roof of the orphanage. Eventually, the dormitory building that had been the sanctuary for the children and sisters was lifted from its foundation. The bottom fell out and the roof came crashing down, trapping those inside. Only three boys from the orphanage survived, William Murney, Frank Madera, and Albert Campbell. Albert Campbell was born on May 19, 1887 in Houston. His mother died in New Orleans in 1895 and his father, a Civil War Union veteran, died in 1898. Of the 11 known children born to William Campbell, also known as William Roust, and Marianne Brown, only four lived to adulthood. As the storm intensified, the boys were moved into the newer and stronger girls' dormitory, and Albert wanted to help his little sister Maggie. Albert remembered climbing on the roof of the dormitory with his little sister and other girls and boys. He also remembered seeing one of the men at the orphanage with a baby on his back. Eventually, the dormitory collapsed and Albert was not able to hold on to Maggie, who drowned as the dormitory sank into the flood waters. Albert managed to escape from the dormitory and made his way to a piece of floating timber and then to a tree. He was battered by debris and was struck violently in the head, but he survived. Two other boys from the orphanage joined him in the same tree. Looking into the water, he had a delirious vision. He thought he saw the sisters tucking the little children into their beds. The sight was so inviting that he tried to get out of the tree and join the sisters. William Murney stopped him from leaving the tree and eventually used ropes that were already in the tree to tie him to keep him safe. It was very likely one of those three great oak trees that had watched over Galveston Island for the past 300 years. This was the storm that had finally uprooted them and toppled them into the water, providing some few very lucky survivors a safe refuge in a world of water. It would have taken a tree that size to provide a safe harbor for boys to tie onto, high enough from the debris-filled water to protect them from getting smashed by floating rooftops, its branches wide enough to keep it from rolling over and pulling them under. In that tree, along with Albert Campbell, was Will Murnie, 13, previously mentioned, who was holding on tightly to his 8-year-old brother Joe. They had come to St. Mary's Orphan's Asylum six years earlier, when consumption and heart attack killed their mother and father on consecutive days, and they would not be parted now. For the next few terrible hours, a thriving city of 38,000 became sea bottom. A storm surge of 20 feet swept over the sandbar the city was built on. With the exception of a few sand dunes, Galveston Island's peak elevation was 8.7 feet. The tops of buildings, some with people clinging to them, poked through angry waves. The surge lifted buildings off foundations. Some collapsed immediately, tossing their occupants into the torrent. Some floated miles away before breaking up. At least 6,000 people died. Local historians put the number much higher 8,000 to 9,000, perhaps even as high as 12,000. No one knows for certain. The sea didn't return all her victims. Years later, with the nightmare far behind him, Will Murney would tell his son that the details of that night were blurred but he would never forget holding tight to his young brother for as long as he could until the roof fell in, until he was struck by a large timber. Will awoke hours later, lodged in the branches of a tree with two other boys, and his younger brother Joe was gone. After the storm, Albert and the boys walked to Fort Crockett, where soldiers cut down uniforms for them to wear. The storm had stripped the boys of their clothes, and all Albert had was a bloody, tattered, and torn undershirt. The three continued their journey into town. At St. Mary's Infirmary, also operated by the Sisters of Charity of the Incarnate Word, Albert received medical care. His mind was blank, and he could only say, Save Maggie. Five days after the storm, Albert was placed on one of the first refugee trains to leave Galveston for Houston. On the train, he was seen by the mother of Mrs. H. H. Kuhlman, a friend of his older sister, Mary Ann. The mother described Albert's body as one mass of cuts. Learning that Albert was alive from her mother, Mrs. Coolman wired his sister in Topeka and then went to St. Joseph Hospital in Houston, where Albert had been taken. She asked the sisters there to let her take Albert with her until his sister could come from Topeka to take him home with her. At first the sisters were reluctant to release Albert to Mrs. Coolman, as the bishop had said that he wanted all three of the boys to be sent to an orphanage in Dallas. However, they let Mrs. Coolman see Albert, and once they saw how he ran to her and begged her to take him, "'The sisters agreed that Albert should go with her "'and eventually go home with his sister. "'His request to go with the woman "'was the first words Albert had spoken, besides, "'Save Maggie.' "'As soon as the trains were running again "'into Houston from Topeka, "'Albert's sister came for him. "'Carrying her three-month-old baby, "'she rode all the way in a baggage car "'filled with supplies. "'It was a joyful reunion for Albert and Mary Ann, "'although Albert was severely injured. "'Mary Ann also looked for Maggie.' but finally accepted that she had died. According to his sister in a letter, four doctors used a method known as trepanation to cut a hole in Albert's skull to relieve intracranial pressure. A plate was placed in his head to cover the opening. Albert went with his sister to Topeka. He was there in 1903 for another flood, which once again threatened his life and the lives of those he loved. Family members recalled that Albert was a jolly man with a wonderful laugh, through a newspaper article in the Houston Post in 1937, he made contact with Frank Madeira and the two met in Houston for a reunion. Returning to our story of the children's orphanage, on the next day, workers and rescuers found the body of a child in the sand. As they removed it, they found it attached at the wrist to another child, and then that child was attached to another. In the next few days, the bodies of 90 children and 10 sisters were found, still bound together, wrist to wrist. The rope had done as intended. The Sisters of Charity of the Incarnate Word stayed with their children to the end. I go wild when it storms, Madeira told the Houston Post 37 years after the hurricane. Not that I'm afraid to die, not that, but I can't sleep, and I think of those who might be in the storm. I hear just one terrible, solid scream of a hundred children. The sisters were buried wherever they were found, with the children still attached to them. Two of the sisters were found together across the bay on the mainland. One of them was tightly holding two small children in her arms. Even in death, she had kept her promise not to let go. A great wall of debris wrapped itself around St. Mary's Infirmary on the eastern end of the city and then zigzagged through the city to the beach. At places, the wall was two stories tall. Inside this great wall were destroyed houses, pieces of furniture, pots, pans, cats, dogs, and people. Those who were dead and those who were dying. At St. Mary's Infirmary, there was no food or water. While the main hospital building was still standing, the adjacent structures had been destroyed. The hospital was packed with those who were injured and those who had nowhere else to go. Two of the sisters walked about the area until they found crackers and cookies that had been soaked in the water. They brought them back to the hospital, and over a fire they built in the street, they dried the food and served it to those in need at the infirmary. Firmly only committed to the healing ministry of Jesus Christ, the sisters repaired St. Mary's Infirmary and one year later opened a new orphanage. Today, the sisters have extended their ministry to other states and foreign countries. On September 8, 1994, a Texas historical marker was placed at 69th Street and Seawall Boulevard, marking the site of the former orphanage. The descendants of two of the survivors, Will Murney and Frank Madera, returned to participate in the marker dedication. As part of the ceremony, Queen of the Waves was again sung at the same time and place, as it had been during the great 1900 storm, and as it continues to be each September 8th by the Sisters of Charity of the Incarnate Word. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, here are some selected accounts from the great Galveston disaster. Author Paul Lester, published just months after the 1900 storm. He writes, Of the property damage, no estimate can be considered accurate. Of marvelous escapes from death, of acts of supreme heroism, of devotion and courage beyond parallel, the storm developed many instances. In some cases, whole families were blotted out. In others, the strong perished and the weak survived. Of the various branches of one family, forty two were killed, while in one household, thirteen out of a total fifteen were lost. Such a scene of desolation as met the eyes of the people of Galveston when day dawned Sunday, September 9th, has rarely been witnessed on earth. Fifteen hundred acres of the city had been swept clear of every habitation, every street was choked with ruins, while the sea, not content with tearing away a great strip along the beach front, had piled the wreckage in one great long mass from city end to city end. Beneath those masses of broken buildings, in the streets, in the yards, in fence corners, in cisterns, in the bay, far out across the waters on the mainland shores, everywhere, in fact, were corpses. Galveston was a veritable charnel house. To bury the dead was a physical impossibility. Added to the horror of so many corpses was the presence of carcasses to thousands of horses, cattle, dogs, and other domestic animals. To a people upon whom such a terrible calamity had been visited, the like of which a civilized people had never been called to perform. To protect the living, the dead had to be gotten rid of with all speed, both corpses on every side, with carcasses by the thousands, and with a severe tropic sun to hasten decomposition. Pestilence in its most terrible form threatened the living if the dead were not removed." The tumbrils that rumbled over Paris streets with the gruesome burdens that came from Robespierre's abattoir had little work compared with the carts and wagons of Galveston in the days that followed the awful storm. It was at first determined to bury the dead at sea, but the procession of the dead seemed never-ending, and the cargoes that were taken to the deep and cast upon the waters came back with the tides and littered the shores. Then it was decided to burn the dead. Ye who know not the horror of those days who took no part in the saddest spectacle that man ever witnessed, may well shed tears of sympathy for those whose human tenement blazed on the funeral pyre in street or avenue, or whose requiem was sung by the waves that had brought death. But shed tears, too, for the brave men who faced this most gruesome duty with a Spartan courage the world has never known before. The dead past has buried its dead. For a week, Alveston was under martial law. There was no disorder. There was some robbing of the dead by ghouls, This was checked by a punishment swift and sure. The city rose from its ruins as if by magic. Street after street was cleared of debris. A small army of men worked from early morn until the shadows of night descended to lift the city from its burden of wreckage. Then, when danger of epidemic seemed past, attention was turned to commerce. The bay was strewn with stranded vessels. Monster ocean steamers weighing thousands of tons had been picked up like toys, driven across the lowlands, and thrown far from their moorings. One big steamship was hurled through three bridges, cutting off any chance of escape, cutting cable wires, cutting off water supply, and delaying help from reaching Galveston during the critical days after the storm. Another, weighing 4,000 tons, was carried 22 miles from deep water and dashed against a bayou bluff in another county. The great wharves and warehouses along the bay front were a mass of splintered, broken timbers but the mighty energy of man worked wonders. Marvelous to say, under such conditions, a bridge two and one-eighth miles long was built across the bay within seven days, and Galveston, which had been cut off from the world, was once more in active touch with all the march of trade and commerce. An undaunted people strove as only an indomitable people can strive to rehabilitate that city. Lester gives us some more insight with regard to Isaac Klein. He writes... Dr. Isaac Klein was chief of the Texas section of the National Weather Service and head of its Galveston Bureau. He lived on the island with his wife Cora and their three children. His brother, Joseph Klein, assisted him in the Galveston office. In his official report on the storm, Klein writes that his brother called him at 5 a.m. September 8th to report the tide, quote, was well up in the low parts of the city, end quote. Klein hitched up his horse and buggy and went to investigate. He found, quote, unusually heavy swells from the gulf. End quote. Overflowing areas near the beach. Northerly winds were driving water into the city from the bay on the island's north side too, and it soon became apparent that Galveston was taking on water from two directions. Showers began about 8.45 a.m. that morning, and dense clouds and heavy rain appeared about noon. The winds began to strengthen about 1 p.m. and reached hurricane velocity about 5 p.m. By nightfall, the island was completely flooded, The gauge at the weather service office blew away after recording winds of about 100 miles per hour, and they continued to climb to at least 120 miles per hour, Klein wrote. Having found the gulf side of the city underwater, and with the wind rising, Klein decided to check on his family. He started for home with water splashing around his shoes. By the time he arrived, he was almost to swimming. I reached home and found the water waist-deep around my residence, he wrote. He also found forty or fifty people in need of shelter and opened his doors to them. The streets were filling with people moving toward the city's highest ground, and the danger was growing. Winds ripped new slate shingles off houses, required after wood shingles had fueled a deadly fire fifteen years earlier and sent them whistling down the streets like scythes. It was at that time that the first bodies appeared. Roofs of the houses and timbers were flying through the streets as though they were paper, and it appeared suicidal to attempt a journey through the flying timbers, Klein wrote. Many people were killed by flying timbers about this time while endeavoring to escape to town. About 7.30 p.m., the main storm surge struck the city's south shore. Houses along the beachfront were lifted from their foundations and sent crashing into other houses. Much of the island was simply swept clean. In one small central section of town, buildings were spared only by a vast wall of debris that eventually encircled them. "'Klein was standing in the front door of his home, "'looking out, when the wall of water arrived. "'There was a sudden rise of about four feet "'in as many seconds,' he wrote. "'The water at this time was about eight inches deep "'in my residence, and the sudden rise of four feet "'brought it up above my waist "'before it could change my position.' "'Tragedy came to the Klein household as well. "'By 8 p.m., floating, dislodged houses "'were battering the sturdy structure. "'The house withstood that fairly well, "'but when a section of railroad trestle struck,' It collapsed. At 8.30 p.m. my residence went down with about 50 persons who had sought it out for safety, and all but 18 were hurled into eternity, Klein wrote in his report. Among those lost was my wife, who never rose above the water after the wreck of the building. I was drowned beyond consciousness, but recovered through being crushed by timbers and found myself clinging to my youngest child, who went down with myself and wife." Miraculously, Klein's brother Joseph appeared moments later with Isaac's two other children, safely aboard floating debris, a piece of roof. We drifted for three hours and landed 300 yards from where we started, Klein wrote. There were two hours that we did not see a house nor any persons, and from the swell we inferred that we were drifting out to sea. In Isaac's storm, Eric Larson portrays Klein as a stubborn and prideful man, slow to react to the approaching danger. In his report following the hurricane, Klein defended the warnings his office gave the city. Our storm warnings were timely, he said. People were advised to seek secure places for the night. As a result, thousands of people who lived near the beach or in small houses moved their families into the center of the city, and thus were saved. In Eric Larson's opinion, much of this reporting was self-serving and lacking in humility. Had it not been for Dr. Klein's insistence that Galveston was somehow storm-proof, the city would have prepared itself to a much greater degree. No one ever dreamed that the water would reach the height observed in the present case, Klein wrote. Actually, a number of Texans were wise to what could happen to Galveston if a large storm was to hit. In 1857, D.E.E. Brayman wrote, Galveston Island, with all its boasted accumulation of people, habitations, wealth, trade and commerce, is but a waif of the ocean, a locality but of yesterday, liable at any moment and certain no distant day, of being engulfed and submerged by the selfsame power that gave it form. Neither is it possible for all the skillful devices of mortal man to protect this doomed place against the impending danger. The terrible power of a hurricane cannot be resisted. I should as soon think of founding a city on an iceberg. Pretty well said, Mr. Breman. The morning sun revealed a nightmare to Klein. He wrote, you may look upon this almost as a message come from the dead. I am so tired and shaken I can hardly write at all. The place is under martial law. They estimate the loss of life from five to eight thousand. I have heard of funeral pyres, but never seen them till now. But you can see the fires on every side where they are burning the dead, and such a queer smell is going on. Hardly a family is left whole. No words can picture this scene. Sunday, September ninth, 1900. Klein wrote, revealed one of the most horrible sights that ever a civilized people looked upon. Bodies were everywhere. At first, graves were dug and attempts were made to identify and briefly honor the dead. Some were brought by wagon to cotton warehouses, temporary morgues on the Strand. Soon, though, the numbers overwhelmed them. On September 10th, desperate for a solution, city officials ordered almost 1,000 bodies taken to sea in barges. There, they were weighted and pushed over the side but it was a bad plan. By the next morning, the tide had returned the bodies to Galveston. They lined the beaches, rolling with the movement of the water. Finally, with the prospect of disease growing more alarming every hour, all pretense at ceremony and even identification was abandoned. The city's central relief committee ordered bodies burned where they were found, in pyres with the wreckage. Personal items were removed and made available for later identification. The funeral fires burned nearly continuously for almost a month. The last body was not recovered until February 10th of the next year. When Galveston's chapter of horrors had reached its crisis, when the people were dazed, leaderless, and almost helpless, so that they went about bewildered and did little more than gather a few hundred of the bodies which were in their way, finally the brave leaders, who are usually not discovered in a community until some great emergency arises, began to forge in front. They were not men from one rank and point of wealth or intelligence. They came from all classes. The next story caption reads, "'Terrible Experiences of a Young Girl' "'Miss Maud Hall, who was spending her school vacation in Galveston "'and who passed through the storm, "'has written of her experience to her parents, "'Mr. and Mrs. Emory Hall of Dallas. "'Miss Hall was in the house where she was boarding "'at the time the storm came. "'She wrote, "'The wind and rain rose to a furious whirlwind.' "'and all the time the water crept higher and higher. "'We all crowded into the hall, and the house, a big two-story one, rocked like a cradle. "'About six o'clock the roof was gone, all the blinds torn off, and all the windows blown in. "'Glass was flying in all directions, and the water had risen to a level with the gallery. "'Then the men told us we would have to go to a house across the street. "'It took two men to each woman to get her across the street and down to the end of the block.' "'Trees thicker than any in our yard were whirled down the street, "'and the water looked like a whirlpool. "'I came near drowning with another girl. "'It was dark by this time, "'and the men put their arms around us "'and down into the water we went. "'I spent the night, such a horrible one, "'wept from my shoulders to my waist "'and from my knees down, and barefoot. "'Nobody had any shoes and stockings. "'The house was packed with people just like us. "'The windows were blown out, "'and it rocked from top to bottom.' "'and water came into the first floor. "'About three o'clock in the morning the wind had changed "'and blew the water back into the gulf. "'As soon as we could we waded home. "'Such a home! "'The water had risen three feet in the house, "'and the roof being gone, the rain poured in. "'We had not had anything to eat since noon the day before, "'and we lived on whiskey. "'It was awful. "'Dead animals were everywhere, "'and the streets filled with fallen telegraph "'and brick stores blown over.' Hundreds of women and children and men "'sitting on steps crying for lost ones, "'and nearly half of them injured. "'Wild-eyed, ghastly-looking men hurried by "'and told of whole families lost. "'All day, wagon after wagon passed filled with dead, "'most of them without a thing on them, "'and men with stretchers with dead bodies "'with just a sheet thrown over them, "'some of them little children.'" Another story. Pete Brophy, clerk of the Corporation Court, is lying in a room at the Tremont Hotel, suffering from injuries received in the storm. The story he tells of his miraculous escape, like the many others, wonderful, yet terrible, is also one of sorrow, as he lost his aged parents in the storm. When the storm began to get so ferocious, he became frightened. In the evening, just after dark, securing a boat, he started out with his parents to a Mr. Cleveland's, a neighbor's house, it being large and the most substantial in the neighborhood. At that time, the water was rising rapidly and was being lashed into a perfect fury by the terrific wind. It was a terrible thing to start out in the water under such conditions, but he saw that their house would not stand long, and so he took the awful risk. The boat was a small affair, and with three people in it, it was overloaded. Nevertheless, with great daring, he succeeded in getting his mother and father into it, the former being 62 years of age and the latter 66. It was a terrific risk, but he had to take it. After getting his parents into the boat, he started out to his neighbor's house. The waters were rushing like mad down the street, and whipped the boat around as if it were but a straw. Added to the terrible force of the waters was the terrific wind. They were getting along all right, notwithstanding this, and were making for the house below them, when just ahead he saw a man and woman and several children making for the boat. When it came near enough, they grasped its sides and begged to be taken in. "'It was indeed a trying situation. "'There he was, with his "'aged parents with him, in a boat already "'overloaded, with the wind blowing "'almost a hundred miles an hour, and carrying "'all before it, with the waves "'dashing everything to pieces, and hurling "'the timbers of the houses against whatever might be "'in the way, with a force that only the most "'vivid imagination can picture. "'It was a terrible "'ordeal, but he could not leave "'those begging parents and crying children without "'making at least an effort to save them. "'So after great difficulty... "'The women and children got aboard, "'and the perilous journey to what they hoped "'would be a haven of refuge was again begun. "'Or rather, it had been going on all the time, "'as the boat was being carried down "'on the crest of the waves with frightful velocity. "'When almost abreast of the house, "'the boat capsized. "'Then again Brophy showed his bravery "'and that he was through and through a hero. "'Instead of striking out alone for the house, "'he thought of his parents and the drowning family. "'After much difficulty,' "'after having gone under time and time again in his frantic efforts to save his loved ones and the destitute family, "'he at last succeeded in getting them into the house. "'That place that they found was filled to overflowing with refugees like themselves. "'The house was creaking and trembling under the terrible force of the water and wind, "'and Brophy saw that it would be but a little while before it too would have to succumb. "'So he braced himself in a door and waited for the inevitable. "'It was but a little while till it came.' The house went down, and all with it, except Brophy, who found himself on top of the water in a gurgling and seething mass of timbers, roofs, and other debris. He crawled up on one roof, only to have another one thrown like a blanket over him. Thus he struggled for two hours in what was an enormous raft of several hundred broken-up houses, going before the wind, being churned together in a huge cauldron by the waters. Whole roofs and sides of houses were bobbing, striking, sinking. Turning over and moving together like chips in a huge whirlpool. "'Words cannot describe that awful scene. "'In it all, Brophy and hundreds of others "'were struggling for their lives almost in vain. "'Dead bodies of women and children "'who had succumbed to the inevitable in the early part of the storm, "'and men and women whom the waters had not yet killed, "'but were playing with like a cat does a mouse "'before hurling them into the beyond, "'were carried hither and thither. "'Thus Brophy struggled, "'several times giving up and letting himself go down, "'but rising each time with a determination to fight until the bitter end, "'although terrible odds were against him. "'After having been in this mighty whirlpool for almost an hour, "'dodging huge timbers, crawling on roofs and sides of houses, "'being sucked under with them, he saw a house standing. "'With almost a last effort, "'he struggled and fought his way to the window of the house. "'There were ready hands to pull him through the window.' This haven which saved his life, together with a number of others, belonged to a Negro and is situated near 37th Street. It was filled with Negro refugees, and it is indeed, to their credit, that they struggled with such heroism to save Brophy and several others who drifted by. Getting into the house, he threw himself on the floor, more dead than alive, and there remained until after the storm, when he was taken by friends to the Tremont Hotel, where he has become convalescent. One of the interesting features of the story of his terrible struggle is his unintentional rescue of a dog. Early in his mad career in that most awful cauldron, he ran across a dog. From that time, until his rescue, it somehow stayed with him and would not be pushed off and at last succeeded in crawling into the window after him. He is going to send for the dog and declares that never while he is living will it want for a rug to sleep on and a bone to eat. Another story involves A.C. Fonda, chief clerk in the Santa Fe General Freight Office at Galveston, who had a fearful experience during the storm. He said that on Saturday afternoon, when it became apparent that the flood was going to be very high, that he went down to his home to remove the furniture from the lower floors to the upper, never dreaming that the effects of the storm would be more than a flooding of the first floors of residences. His family being away in California, fortunately for them, he worked alone and had about removed everything when the water got so high that he could not escape from the house. He had noted a large zinc-lined wooden tank on the upper floor, used for holding water, and which he thought might be used for a boat, when suddenly the crash came and he knew no more for possibly an hour. He recovered consciousness to find himself floating in the tank on the surging waters, bruised, bleeding, and almost drowned. He managed to escape to higher ground in a short while and crawled into a deserted house, where he spent a night of horror, suffering from his injuries and momentarily expecting death. As soon as daylight came, he sought surgical assistance and then saw the awful results of the hurricane's work. Mr. Fonda is bruised all over and has a deep wound on the back of his head, but no bones were broken, and he is able to be at work. E.F. Adams, chief clerk in the Santa Fe Passenger Department at Galveston, is also a flood sufferer, but happily his family are in St. Louis at present, and his residence, being at Alvin, only suffered slight damage. He said that he and 52 others occupied the Santa Fe general offices on the night of the storm, and that, in his opinion, very few of them, if any, realized the awfulness of the disaster until next day, as the sheet-iron roof on the train shed became loose early in the evening, and the tremendous noise it made flopping up and down prevented them from hearing the crash of falling buildings, or perhaps the screams of drowning human beings during the night. It was only when they came out next morning, Mr. Adams said, that he realized what the storm meant to thousands in the faded city. Almost the first object that met his eyes was the corpse of a child lying on the sidewalk, which staggered him, and with the sickening sights afterward presented to his view, gave him a shock whose gruesomeness it will take a lifetime to efface. A letter to a newspaper furnishes the following account of the terrible experiences of one of the survivors. I came home from my work Saturday evening about four o'clock with Lewis Fisher. I left Lewis on Tremont Street and Avenue O, where the water was three feet deep. He said he was going out to help his people and told me goodbye. So I started for home to see how my folks were. When I got home, I found my folks all there, and the water was then five feet deep. I lived one block from the beach. I began to take them out. Our front steps had already washed away. I took them to S. Smith's house on 17th and O, a big two story house, thinking it would be safe. But it began to grow worse. "'so I took my father, sister, and two smaller brothers "'on 19th and O, in Mrs. Carlstead's house, "'where there were some 30 people. "'I told my father to take care of the children "'and started back for my mother and brother. "'On my way I met my friend, Gus Smith of 19th and O, "'and he told me that he would go with me "'and help me get my mother and brother. "'It took us an hour to swim one block, "'and when we got to the house "'it had already been washed into the street, "'and my little brother had been washed outside "'and was drowning, but I got to him in time.' "'and took him back inside. "'Smith and I went inside, "'and there we found a colored family "'and the armored family, "'all asking us to take them away, "'but it was too late, "'as the water was then eight feet deep. "'Finally the whole top of the house blew off, "'and the water was pouring in, "'and all the people began to pray. "'The house was twenty-five feet high, "'and the waves went clean over it. "'Finally the whole thing fell in, "'and I grabbed my mother around the waist, "'and Smith took my brother, "'and down we went.' It was two minutes before we had a raft and were on 18th Street in O. There were 28 in the house and all we could save were seven people as it was so dark that you could see no one. We got one little Negro boy by the name of Albert. We stayed out on the raft all night without a stitch of clothes on and the rain was something awful. It felt like someone was shooting buckshot at us from a distance. About two o'clock in the morning we caught two trunks and broke them open and it looked like a godsend to us as both were full of blankets. "'We took these blankets and covered the women and children, "'or else I believed they would have frozen to death. "'About five o'clock in the morning I got up and started "'in search of my father and sister and other two brothers, "'and the first thing I did when I got off the raft "'was to step on a dead body. "'I then went a few steps further "'and found Mrs. A.C. Bell of 18th and O "'and Mrs. Junker of O "'between 16th and 17th Streets, both dead. "'We had come from 17th and Beach to 19th and N., Right across the street was Mr. Sewell's house, and I went over there to search for the rest of my folks and found them there all right, so I went back and got my mother and brother off the debris and brought them all together once more. We have lost everything we owned and can't find a piece of the house or a button off anyone's clothes, but I still have my front door key. My folks are cut up pretty much, and so am I about the feet, but I'm going to stay here and try to make Galveston what it has been." In the house on 17th and O is where Mrs. Armour and her five children were drowned. And here is the story of Officer Plummer's boat. Police Officer W.H. Plummer is the happy possessor of a four-oared boat, which he has christened Cyclone Rescue, in honor of its work in the storm. The boat is constructed on the pattern of what is known as an eastern pod, such as is used by the lobster fishermen of Maine. The boat was built to withstand the rough seas, and was so constructed with two airtight compartments as to be used as a lifeboat. This boat with lashed oars was kept by Officer Plummer in his yard, corner of 7th and Church Streets, one of the first districts to suffer from the invasion of the destructive gulf on the fatal day of the storm. When Captain Plummer went home to dinner on that day, the gulf was rising very rapidly, and the storm gave indications of greater severity. Having spent many years at sea, Captain Plummer called his two sons, who were sailors, and the three men launched the boat and started rescuing families in the neighborhood, taking them to St. Mary's Infirmary. From noon until late that night, the good boat and its faithful crew braved the terrific storm and are credited with having saved two hundred lives. On the last trip that night, with Captain Plummer almost helpless from exhaustion and his sons fast succumbing to the terrible battle of the day, the boat suffered a slight mishap. She was struck by a piece of wreckage driven by great force into her side. But the boat held the water, "'and landed her crew safely at the infirmary. "'Once, during the height of the storm, "'the boat, with seven on board, was capsized, "'but the experienced seamen soon had her righted and bailed, "'and all on board were saved. "'Captain Plummer lost his home and everything else, "'and everything but the scant clothes on his back, "'but he says he wouldn't part with the cyclone rescue "'for its weight in gold. "'Some who were out in the water "'from the time the houses first began to go down "'drifted but a few hundred feet, while others were carried miles by the water. So it was with Miss Anna Delts, a 16-year-old girl who lived out in the West End near the beach. She drifted a distance of over 18 miles, landing not far from Texas City. She passed the Bay Bridge and hung for some time on one of the pilings, then catching a piece of driftwood, continued a perilous journey, landing not far from her aunt's house on the mainland. She tells the story of her trip on the crest of the waves as follows. "'It was about two o'clock in the afternoon "'when I first realized that the storm was increasing. "'Together with a girlfriend who was in the house, "'I packed my mother's trunk "'and carried all of the household goods that I could "'and piled them in the second story "'to keep them from being washed away by the water, "'which was rapidly rising. "'During this time, "'the wind had been increasing in velocity all the time. "'At about four o'clock, "'my mother and sister, who was thirteen years of age, "'were taken to a place of refuge by a friend. "'A girlfriend and myself were left, "'thinking that we would be safe.' But it was not over an hour after that when the house went down. It went with a crash, and myself, together with others in the house, were thrown out into the furious waters. I caught on to a tree and stayed there for a little while, but was dashed off and sank under the water several times. While hanging on to the tree, a roof came along, on which there were about twenty people, mostly women and children. I got on with them and stayed there for some time. "'seeing my companions in distress being washed off one by one "'until at last there were only a young girl and myself left. "'Soon she went, and I was left alone to battle with the waves. "'Soon I caught a piece of driftwood, "'and I think I floated out into the gulf. "'Then the wind changed, and I began going the other way. "'I was tossed out into the bay at last, "'having passed during this time many people floating on drifts of all kinds, "'and people struggling in the water, trying to save themselves. "'I drifted thus for a long time,' "'coming after a while to where the railroad bridges crossed the bay. "'I caught hold of one of the pilings "'and stayed there for a time trying to rest. "'During the night my clothes had been entirely torn from my body "'and I was in horrible plight. "'After having stayed there a little longer, "'I caught a piece of driftwood and turned loose and drifted with the tide. "'At last I drifted to a pile of lumber, "'and finding that the water was not deep there, "'I fell on top of the lumber. "'I was so exhausted by the terrible ride that I had taken "'that I immediately went to sleep.' About daylight I awakened, and found myself in a strange place. I walked to a house some distance from there, and upon inquiring, found that I was at Lamarck. Remembering that I had an aunt living at that place, I found her house, which was also almost a ruin. This aunt took me in charge, and I stayed there until I heard from my father, and then came back to Galveston. Destitute, save for a few personal effects carried in a small valise, and with nerves shattered by a week of horror, Mr. and Mrs. C. A. Prutzman, with the two daughters, twelve and six years old, reached Chicago Sunday morning, September 16th, from the flood-swept district of Texas. "'Yes, we were fortunate,' said Mrs. Prutzman, as she leaned wearily back in a rocking chair and tenderly contemplated the two children at her side. "'It seems to me just like an awful dream, and when I think of the hundreds and hundreds of children who were killed right before our very eyes, I feel as though I always ought to be satisfied, no matter what comes.' Mr. Brutzman said, The reports from Galveston are not half as appalling as the situation really is. We left the faded city Wednesday afternoon, going by boat to Texas City and by rail to Houston. The condition of Galveston at that time, while showing an improvement, was awful, and never shall I forget the terrible scenes that met our eyes as the boat on which we left steamed out of the harbor. There were bodies on all sides of us. In some places they were piled six and seven deep, and the stench was horrible. I resided with my family at 718 19th Street. This is 14 blocks away from the beach. Yet my house was swept away at 5 p.m. Saturday, and with it went everything we had in the world. Fifteen minutes before, I took my wife and children to the courthouse, and we were saved, along with about a thousand others who sought refuge there. When we went through the streets, the water was up to our arms, and we carried the children over our heads. I assisted for several days in the work of rescue. In one pile of debris we found a woman who seemed to have escaped the flood, but who was injured and pinned down so she could not escape. A guard came along, and after failing to rescue her, deliberately shot her to end her misery. The streets present a gruesome appearance. Every available wagon and vehicle in the city is being used to transport the dead, and it is no uncommon thing to see a load of bodies ten deep. The stench in the city is nauseating. Since the flood, the only water that could be used for drinking purposes was in cisterns, and it has become tainted with the slime and filth that covers the city until it is little better than no water at all. Since the city was placed under martial law, conditions have been much better and there is little lawlessness. The soldiers have shown no quarter and have orders to shoot on sight. This has had a wonderful effect on the disreputable characters who have flocked into the city. Everybody who remains in Galveston is made to work. "'and the punishment for a refusal is about the same "'as that meted out to the ghouls. "'I saw four men shot in one day. "'They were confined in the hold of a steamer in the harbor. "'They were found by the soldiers with a flour sack "'almost filled with fingers and ears on which were jewels. "'These men probably had been publicly executed before this time. "'In the work of rescue we found whole families tied together with ropes, "'and in several instances mothers had their babes clasped in their arms.' "'Scores of unfortunates "'straggle into Houston every day "'and their condition is pitiable. "'Several have lost their reason. "'The citizens of Houston are doing all in their power "'to meet the demands of the sufferers, "'and every available building in the city "'has been converted into a hospital. "'When we arrived in Houston, "'we scarcely had clothes enough to cover us, "'and the citizens fitted us out and started us north. "'The fear of fever or some awful plague "'drove us from Galveston. "'Already speculators are flocking into the city.' and there was some activity among them over tax title real estate. In several instances, whole families were wiped out of existence, and the opportunities in this line seemed to be great. The great storm which has just devastated Galveston reminds me of the terrible equinoctial storm that swept over that city in December of 1875. One of the most pathetic stories of suffering in Galveston was brought to light Friday morning when the Southern Pacific train arrived at New Orleans from Houston. Among the passengers were Mrs. Mary Quayle of Liverpool, England, and Mr. Jonathan Hale of Gloversville, New York. Mrs. Quayle came from New York to Galveston, arriving there on the Thursday before the storm, accompanied by her husband, Edward Quayle, a tabulator in the Liverpool Cotton Exchange. Mrs. Quayle and her husband took apartments the Lucas Terrace, a fashionable place in the eastern end of Galveston Island. All day Saturday, the day of the storm, her husband was not feeling well, and remained in his room most of the time, lying down on a couch. When the storm became very bad after eight o'clock, he arose and went to the window to look out in the darkness, hoping to see, by an occasional flash of lightning, whether or not there was danger of destruction, as was greatly feared. Suddenly there came an unusually violent fit of wind, and the window out of which Mr. Quayle was peering was literally sucked out as if by a mighty air pump, and he was taken along with it. Mrs. Quayle, so far as she was able to explain, instead of being drawn along in the direction of the storm, "'was thrown in the opposite direction against the door of her room. "'When she came to her senses, she found that she was not severely hurt "'and began to call for her husband. "'There was no reply, and in her fright she fairly shrieked out his name. "'Mr. Hale, who occupied the adjoining room, "'came to her assistance and cared for her until dawn of Sunday morning. "'Then they went out together and searched the adjacent portion of the city "'for her missing husband. "'But not a trace of him was to be found. "'The search was kept up until Monday night,' "'by which time all the wounded had been cared for in the best possible way "'and all the unburied dead had become putrid. "'Then Mr. Hale brought Mrs. Quayle via Houston to New Orleans "'and they immediately took the through Louisville and Nashville train for New York. "'Mr. Quayle had on his person some very valuable jewelry "'and quite a large sum of money at the time he disappeared. "'Luckily, however, Mrs. Quayle had enough money on her "'to pay her way back to England. "'She was completely overcome by fright "'and although having not yet reached the middle age,' "'had all the appearance of being a frail, decrepit old woman "'so terrible had been her recent and trying ordeal. "'She was compelled to remain in her berth while traveling. "'Our last story is titled "'Illinois Girl as a Trying Time in the Ruined City. "'Miss Alice Pixley of Elgin, Illinois, "'arrived at her home on Sunday, September 16th, from Galveston, "'where she had a most trying time during the storm. "'She told her story in a wonderfully graphic way. "'I had been in Galveston for about six weeks, "'visiting Miss Lulu George,' "'who lives on 35th Street between N and N and 1 Half Streets. "'Buildings had gone down as mere eggshells "'before that death-dealing wind. "'About one-thirty o'clock I told Miss George "'that we must make our way to another building "'about half a block away. "'The water had risen over five feet in two hours, "'and as I hurried to the front door, "'the wind tore down my hair, and I was blinded for a time. "'I turned my eyes to the west, "'and for three long miles there was not a building standing. "'Everything had been swept away.' How we ever reached the two-story building a hundred yards away, I do not know. We waded through the water, and every few minutes we were carried off our feet and dashed against the floating debris. The building we were trying to reach was a store, and the foundation kept out the water. We hurried to the cellar and stayed there for several hours. At last the windswept waves found an opening and broke through the foundation, and we had a mad run to escape the rushing, swirling waters. We reached the first floor, and I shrank into a corner, expecting every second to be carried out to my death. How it happened I can never tell, but this and one other building were the only ones left for blocks around. As it was, several people were killed in the building we occupied and the other house that was left standing. After a time I felt faint from hunger, and while too weak from fright to seek food, I told Miss George that I would go into another room. I staggered along the floor until I reached a window and fell, half fainting, through it. As I leaned there, I witnessed sights that I prayed God will never make another person see. Whirling by me, bodies, more than I could dare count, were crushed and mangled between a jumble of timbers and debris. Men, women, and children went by, sinking, floating, dashing on I know not where. I wanted to close my eyes, but I could not. I cried aloud and made an attempt to go to my friends, but I was exhausted, and all I could do was to watch the terrible scenes." "'Babies—oh, such pretty little ones, too—were carried on and on, "'gowned in dainty clothing, their eyes open, staring in mute terror above. "'Thank providence they were dead. "'I was partly blinded by tears, but I could still see through the mist. "'Little arms seemed to stretch toward me, asking assistance, and there I lay, "'half-prostrated, too weak to lend assistance. "'How it all ended, I know not. "'I must have fainted, for I awakened with—' "'We are saved, Alice,' ringing in my ears.' When I found we could get out of the city, I declared I would go at all costs. I thought of home and my parents, and I wanted to telegraph, just like thousands of others, that I was safe. It was days before we could get away, however, and then it was in the most terrible confusion. Eighty-eight persons crowded on a small boat and started for Houston. The day we left, the militia was out in all its force. I could hear the sharp report of a rifle and the wail of some soul as he paid the penalty for his operations. Later, I saw the soldiers with their glistening rifles leveled at scores of men and saw them topple forward dead. Oh, they had to shoot those terrible beasts, for they were robbing the dead. They groveled in blood, it seemed. I saw with my own eyes the fingers of women cut off by regular demons in their search for jewels. The soldiers came and killed them, and it was well. We'll return with the rest of our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. A number of cities, businesses, organizations, and individuals made monetary donations toward rebuilding Galveston. By September 15th, less than one week after the storm struck Galveston, contributions totaled about $1.5 million. More than 134000 in donations poured in from New York City alone. Five other major cities, St. Louis, Chicago, Boston, Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia, had also donated at least 15000 by September 15th. By state, The largest donations included $228,000 from New York, $67,000 from Texas, $56,000 from Illinois, $53,000 from Massachusetts, and $52,000 from Missouri. Contributions also came from abroad, such as from Canada, Mexico, France, Germany, England, and South Africa, including $10,000 each from Liverpool and Paris. Andrew Carnegie made the largest personal contribution, $10,000, while an additional $10,000 was donated by a steel company. It was one of those monstrosities of nature which defied exaggeration and fiendishly laughed at all tame attempts of words to picture the scene as they prepared. The churches, the great business houses, the elegant residences of the cultured and opulent, the modest little homes of laborers of a city of nearly 40,000 people, the center of foreign shipping and railroad traffic lay in splinters and debris piled twenty feet above the surface and the crushed bodies, dead and dying, of nearly 10,000 of its citizens, lay under them. Clara Barton, the founder and president of the American Red Cross, and famous for her responses to crisis in the latter half of the 19th century, responded to the disaster and visited Galveston with a team of eight Red Cross workers. This would be the last disaster that Barton responded to, as she was 78 years old at the time and would retire in 1904. After Barton and the team observed the catastrophe the Red Cross set up a temporary headquarters at a four-story warehouse in the Commercial District. Her presence in Galveston and appeals for contributions resulted in a substantial amount of donations. Overall, 258 barrels, 1,552 pillowcases, and 13 casks of bedding, clothing, crockery, disinfectants, groceries, hardware, medical supplies, and shoes were received at the warehouse, while $17,341 in cash was donated to the Red Cross. Contributions, both monetary gifts and supplies, were estimated to have reached about $120,000. Before the hurricane of 1900, Galveston was considered to be a beautiful and prestigious city and was known as the Ellis Island of the West and the Wall Street of the Southwest. However, after the storm, development shifted north to Houston, which reaped the benefits of the oil boom, particularly after the discovery of oil at Spindletop on January 10, 1901. The dredging of the Houston Ship Channel began by 1909, which opened in 1914, ending Galveston's hopes of regaining its former status as a major commercial center. To prevent future storms from causing destruction like that of the 1900 hurricane, many improvements to the island were made. The city of Galveston hired a team of three engineers to design structures for protection from future storms, Alfred Noble, Henry Martin Robert, and H.C. Ripley. The three engineers recommended and designed a seawall. In November of 1902, residents of Galveston overwhelmingly approved a bond referendum to fund building a seawall, passing the measure by a boat of 3,085 to 21. Makes you wonder who those 21 were. The first three miles of the Galveston seawall, 17 feet high, were built beginning in nineteen oh under the direction of Henry Martin Robert. In July of 1904, the first segment was completed, though construction of the seawall continued for several decades with the final segment finished in 1963. Upon completion, the seawall in its entirety stretched for more than 10 miles. Another dramatic effort to protect Galveston was its raising, also recommended by Noble, Robert and Ripley. Approximately 15 million cubic yards of sand was dredged from the Galveston shipping channel to raise the city, some sections by as much as 17 feet. Over 2,100 buildings were raised in the process of pumping sand underneath including the 3,000-square-foot St. Patrick's Church. According to historian David McComb, the grade of about 500 blocks had been raised by 1911. In 1915, a storm similar in strength and track to the 1900 hurricane struck Galveston. The 1915 storm brought storm surge up to 12 feet, testing the integrity of the new seawall. Although 53 people on Galveston Island did lose their lives in that 1915 storm, This was a great reduction from the thousands who died in 1900. Other powerful tropical cyclones would test the effectiveness of the seawall, including Hurricane Carla in 1961, Hurricane Alicia in 1983, and Hurricane Ike in 2008. Despite the seawall, Ike left extensive destruction in Galveston due to storm surge, with preliminary estimates indicating that up to $2 billion in damage occurred to beaches, dwellings, hospitals, infrastructure, and ports. So there was still work to be done. There is a Place of Remembrance statue, which was dedicated in 2000, on the beach, on the Galveston seawall. The statue is ten feet high and portrays a family, a father, mother, and child, clinging together. One of the man's arms is reaching for the sky, and the other is around his wife. She is cradling their baby in her arms. 69th Street and Seawall Boulevard. There is a marker near where St. Mary's Orphan's Asylum fell 100 years ago. A Walmart supercenter now occupies this spot. Among those who attended the small ceremony held when the marker went up was Robert Murney, Will Murney's son. He said one of his father's hands bore a large scar, but for many years Will Murney told no one how he came to have it. Only late in his life, Robert Murney said, did his father tell him that the scar was made by the debris that knocked his eight-year-old brother from his arms on the night of the storm. His father, he said, was a shy... Loving and modest man who married and raised four successful sons. Will Murney seldom spoke of the nineteen hundred storm, his son said, but when he did, he spoke of the loving care provided by the sisters. Will Murney died in nineteen seventy one. Wherever they are in the world on september eighth, the members of the Congregation of the Sisters of Charity of the Incarnate Word will sing again that old French hymn, Queen of the Waves. They've been doing it every year for a century. "'The kids were a special tragedy,' said Linda MacDonald, "'and they are a special part of the history of our city.'" MacDonald, fourth generation, born on the island, worked with the Sisters of Charity of the Incarnate Word to persuade the state of Texas to place the historic marker. She explained why the town's history, and especially the storm's history, is important. "'I love Galveston. I love its history,' she said. "'I'll grab total strangers and tell them about my city.'" I've been hearing these stories of the storm since I was three years old and they were always told as though they happened last week. As my grandfather got old, he remembered less and less about everything except the storm. The storm he remembered clearly until he died. I asked him once why he kept telling all those stories and he said, We tell them so we remember to kiss our loved ones before we go to bed and when you awake, if they are all still around you, then you take time to thank God. Thank you for joining us, everyone, at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. We always appreciate reviews. We appreciate your supporting us at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. For just a few dollars a month, you can help 1001stories make it to 2001stories. We stay very busy here trying to bring you different stories from history and also sharing a lot of literature. At 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales... 1,001 Greatest Love Stories, and 1,001 Stories for the Road. We'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.